This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Francis Haugen is a name tied to Facebook now. The former employee was the whistleblower calling out some of the actions of the social media company. Research done back in 2013 highlighted the importance of coming forward when unethical conduct was taking place, as well as the fact that it may very well be more than just one person in supporting a whistleblower to come forward. Samir Nur Mohammed is an assistant professor of management at the Wharton School and was part of that research back in 2013, and he joins us to take a look uh, back right now. Samir, great to talk to you again. Hope you're doing well. It's good to be here. Well, obviously, this is a big topic now, but let's go back in time a little bit and look at the importance of doing the research that you and your colleagues did back in 2013. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the literature on whistleblowing is one that's been around for a while, but not all the sources have been fully documented. Um, And at the time we were doing the research, a lot was made of the role of leadership in eliciting whistleblowing um, within organizations. And what we wanted to find out was, well, if you simply have an ethical leader, is that sufficient? Is that enough? And what we found in our research is that it's not just the leadership at the top, but it's also your coworkers who have a strong influence on whether you blow the whistle or not and whether you speak about issues that, that are about morality in your organization. So tell us how you, you conducted the studies and, and it, how you saw that component of, as you allude to it, kind of the entire village playing a role here. Yeah, so we did, we did three studies in this paper. And one of the cool things about doing multiple studies within a paper is that you can you know, each study has its own limitations, but you can build on each study and hopefully resolve the limitations as you go through. Um, so our first couple of studies looked at, you know, field research in which we surveyed employees on the ethical leadership within their organization. We also asked them questions about their coworkers and their own ethical behavior. So, for instance, we asked questions such as, you know, do your coworkers support you in following your company's standards of ethical behavior, for example? Um, and then we asked them to report the extent to which they had uh, reported unethical conduct within their organization. And we saw this consistent pattern across the the two field studies. Even when we actually asked people to report on an instance of whistleblowing themselves, this was across uh, multiple organizations. This was 33,000 employees from across uh, 16 manufacturing and technology development firms. So we, we saw it both within an organization, but then across you know, multiple organizations, 33,000 employees. Um, But then we did a a last study in which we took it into the lab to basically infer causality a little bit better, to really find out what was going on and what explains the effects underlying this. So now here we are eight years later, uh, and this is still very much an issue, and obviously it is really in in the short term. When you look at uh, what we know to this point about Facebook, uh, is the expectation that, that maybe Frances Haugen did receive support, at least from her uh, co-workers, to bring this forward? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's an interesting question. I mean, Facebook talks a lot about doing good in the world, right? I mean, not only Mark Zuckerberg's talking about that, but, you know, the employees themselves very much see themselves as having a social mission and trying to connect the world together. And what's been interesting to me, kind of observing this from the outside, is the extent to which employees on their own internal boards were really kind of applauding her for speaking up. Um, it's, I think people often don't realize how hard it is to be a whistleblower. So I remember back when um, 
Enron came out and yeah. the whistleblower there spoke up about it. You know, she was asked the question, you know, what do, what do you advise employees who are considering blowing the whistle um, within the organization? And I think it was Shirley Watkins and she said, I'd advise them to run. I'd advise them to leave the organization as fast as they can because oftentimes in organizations, it's always safe to speak about unethical issues, about morality, for instance, especially in organizations where unethical behavior is rampant, such as in the version of uh, Enron. Now, obviously, Facebook is quite different from Enron. Um, it's you know a totally separate set of circumstances and issues. But I just found it interesting that she you know she had taken it upon it herself to really try to speak out in public, um, probably partially because she was just as we heard from her testimony, she didn't believe that this problem could be resolved within the organization itself. How then does the fear of retaliation play into this? Yeah, so it's a great question. So that's one of the things we looked at in our third uh, study uh, in the experiment. So two main explanations for why people blow the whistle is one, or why people are inclined or less inclined to blow the whistle. One is this fear of retaliation. When you're worried about your, your coworkers and the organization itself retaliating against you, you're less likely to speak up. But another explanation for this is what we call feelings of futility. That by simply by speaking up, nothing will be done, for example. So we tested these two explanations in our last study, and we found that actually this fear of retaliation has a stronger influence on whether people blow the whistle or not, especially when you, know, you look at both ethical leadership and coworker ethical behavior. The reasons why having a high, highly ethical leader and a high coworker ethical behavior leads to whistleblowing is through reduced perceptions of, of fear of retaliation. Um, but, but, you know, I, I, will, I will note, Dan, that a lot of this research that we did was kind of thinking about internal whistleblowing. So sure. not necessarily whistleblowing within your group, but internal to the organization itself. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in the Facebook case, it's a little bit different. It's more of external whistleblowing, which, you know, is a, is a slightly different example. How, how, do you, how do you differentiate those two in terms of their importance to uh, having an ethical organization? Is there a difference between the two? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, so Michael Park and Eli Scherf, um, so Michael is actually one of our, our faculty members here at Warden. Um, they've done this really interesting work recently looking at the impact of what leads to voice within an organization, but also what leads to silence. And people often assume that these two things were synonymous, that the same factors that influence whether someone speaks up are the same factors that influence whether people stay silent. But what they found in their research is that they're actually different processes. So, for instance, if you want people to not be silent in an organization, you have to really have psychological safety, which, which is all about kind of making sure that the organization is safe for interpersonal risk-taking and people feel like, comfortable speaking up about issues within the organization. Um, I think in this case, you know, there, there, was a, there were probably a couple things going on. One is that she probably didn't feel much psychological safety despite the messages from, you know, the, high lead, the people up top. Um, but the other thing, too, is that I wonder to what extent, you know, given that this ex external whistleblowing, there, was this there were these feelings of futility that, you know, even if she spoke up internally, and this has been an issue that we've seen in the press for a while now about Facebook. What's interesting about this example is that this has come out of nowhere. I think the documentation, which is, which is what separated this instance from prior um, people speaking up about um, Facebook in itself, um, but, but what was kind of interesting from her example is that she probably felt like nothing could really be done within, within Facebook. And you clearly saw that when she was giving her testimony co to Congress. She simply said that, you know, there has to be a role of government, for example, 
um, in this in this process. It can't just simply be you know expe expecting us to have Facebook kind of regulate itself. And I think you know what's also been interesting from the other side is thinking about okay, well, Facebook, do they want regulation or not? And you're kind of getting somewhat mixed messages. On the one hand, they're saying, yeah, we want we actually would welcome government regulation and so forth on this. And that way we have a common set of standards. But at the same time, of course, they're an organization and they probably want to maintain their power too. So in the time from when you did the research back in 2013 to now, how do you think the dynamics of whistleblowing and either support or dissuading of that activity has changed during that time? Yeah, so it's a good question. So there, you know, there's been some some work since then, since we, the time we did our paper, um, and there are a couple things that I would kind of highlight. So one is, you know, when when people think about whistleblowing from the perspective of the whistleblower, there is this trade-off in value that people face. You know, I want to speak up about something related to fairness and justice, right? Something going wrong, but yeah. at the same time, there's this competing value of loyalty. Loyalty to the people within the organization, people that have supported me, people that have been paying my salary and so forth. And that trade-off is really hard for whistleblowers to deal with. I, I don't think people fully understand the role that each of those values are competing for people in these instances. So that's, that's one. The second thing that I, that I would highlight is the, the idea of not just, you know, in, in the Enron case, there was a clear case of whistleblowing given the practices. But, you know, in this case, this is a version of whistleblowing, but I would also call it a version of what we call moral objections. It's basically mm -hmm. speaking up about an issue that relates to mora morality within the organization. And we can think of it also through this lens. And one of the – there's been a burgeoning and emerging literature on this topic, and there's a couple interesting findings that I'll highlight. One is that people who have more power within the organization are often reacted to better when they raise a moral objection. If you have less power – people are less favorable towards you. Um, the second thing, the second finding that I would highlight, and this is actually some work by Tim Kundra, one of our former doctoral students here at Warden, with Nancy Rothbard, who's a faculty member in our department. Um, but they were actually looking at, well, how does this role of power play in terms of moral objection for both men and women? And what they find is, is two interesting things. One is that actually having power isn't necessarily enough for people reacting favorably to women speaking up about ethical issues within the organization. Um, mm -hmm. But one of the cool things about their studies that I, that I really like is that they have this last study, in which they kind of tested an intervention. And they saw the, the frame that people use um, for raising the moral objection. One was just kind of using a, what, what they call a standard frame. You know, I think this is immoral on the one hand, right? But the other frame mm -hmm. is what we call a pro-social organizational frame. It's this idea that you know, this is better for the organization. I'm doing this to, to help the organization, essentially. And when women tended to use that pro-social organizational frame, they were less likely to be retaliated against in, in the end. So that's just, the, you know, there's been some more work in these literatures that I think have come out over time. And it's a, it's a really exciting space to be working in. It does make you think, though, that that this is this type of activity is something that is going to, uh, you know, continue to be be here in our business culture for quite some time, and, and it really does, to a degree, provide a you know an important function in the process of the operation. Sometimes, yeah, absolutely. I think I think there's you know there's no question that this is going that this is here to say, and, and you know we only see the highly uh, publicized examples of whistleblowing, but we're all also forgetting about all the other folks that you know are thinking about it but don't feel safe to do it essentially. 
Um, the other thing that I think is interesting about what you mentioned, Dan, is also this idea of, well, you know, who spoke up before and who speaks up after? And, you know, uh, a question in the next six months to a year is to what extent are other employees within the organization, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, and so forth, going to similarly make statements? And it remains to be seen whether it will, you know, lead to more people speaking out about the practices within the organization. People have said it's a big tobacco moment for Facebook, and I think a lot of it depends on whether other people speak up or not. Right. How do you think then the findings of the report you did eight years ago will end up continuing to play out in, in today's culture? Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's interesting from, from this from eight years ago. I was thinking about it before, before our, our chat today. And, you know, when we were, we were doing this research way back when, we were thinking about, okay, well, this is something that we only see in really high-profile high corporate scandals in the public eye. But, we, but, you know, there's whistleblowing that happens across levels within the organization. I think what's interesting to think about in our context is the extent to which, you know, did, did you feel more comfortable speaking up because there were these publicized messages from Facebook that, you know, yeah. we're trying to be a platform that unites the world, for example. The people joining Facebook, her colleagues, her peers, similarly kind of talked about that mission and purpose of Facebook in those terms. And, you know, when you have that kind of culture, you have that messaging, even if people aren't necessarily living up to it fully, as an outsider, you kind of gravitate towards the organization. You think it's an admirable mission. So I wonder to what extent, you know, Facebook, by having these messages, has really kind of put it out there that, like, we're trying to recruit people that have these values, too. And I think in, in her case, you know, there's, you can ask the question, you know, to what extent did she feel like those messages led her to believe that this was the right thing to do in this circumstance? Sure. And I, sure. and I think that we're going to continue to see, like, to what extent, you know, leadership, especially as corporate executives and CEOs take more of a stand on moral issues in society, to what extent yeah. that leads more people below them to speak up. And we know from prior research that actually when there's ethical leadership at the top, it does trickle down throughout the levels within the organization, too. Well, and, and of course, with the calls being made by a lot of people in the public uh, right now and, and the mindset of, you know, expecting more from our companies, it's probably not a surprise that the pressure will continue to be on a lot of these firms to try and make sure that they are ethical. Not that they're going to be that 100% of the time. I think that's, you know, a bit of a lark to, to consider that uh, for all companies, but the pressure is going to continue to be on them moving forward. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, one thing that I'm, I, I, I will say I'm a little bit worried about is, you know, it's, it's interesting to me that, you know, Facebook was doing this research on its platforms and the effect that they're having. And, you know, not every company does that. And, and I think yeah. it is noteworthy that, you know, if, if for instance, this, this happens and Facebook, you know, has, has um, repercussions for what happened from Congress and from the government and so forth, to what extent are other organizations going to conduct those same research studies on some of the downsides of their platforms or their products, for instance? And if it's right. easier for them to just kind of, you know, sweep it under the rug, I'm worried that, you know, they won't even pursue these, this type of research in the first place. And we'll just have to rely even more on, on people kind of coming up in her shoes. Because I think what really helped in this situation is that she had evidence. She had documentation showing that Facebook was aware of these issues. But I would hate for, for us to see in the future companies not engaging in this research to really understand the effects that their products are having. All right. Samir, as always, great to talk with you. Thanks for a few moments. Thank you so much, and have a great weekend. Thank you. Samir Noor Mohammed. Assistant Professor of Management at the Wharton School.
To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.